This podcast is brought to you by Future Women. Become a member to gain full access to our exclusive content and packed calendar of online events. Every week we bring you amazing guests, expert advice, and you get to ask the questions. You can also upskill with our online learning program to build resilience and better define your personal brand. It's never been more important to connect, learn, and lead. Join the movement today by going to futurewomen.com. There's an option to suit every budget. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for season three of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Today's guest is Lara Vandenberg, the CEO and founder of Publicist, a marketplace that connects premium PR and marketing talent with brands and companies that need a project-based communications model. Publicist is its essentially an online marketplace that connects PR and marketing talent uh, with brands. So um, Airbnb is a marketplace, Uber is a marketplace, and essentially um, there are two sides, supply and demand, um, and we connect them through technology. While working in the global epicentre of PR in New York, Lara saw an industry that was in need of a shake-up and thought she was just the woman to do it. So unless you are, I think, one of the big four tech companies, you know, an Amazon or a Facebook, you actually don't need traditional PR 365 days of the year. Um, It's really cyclical. So one month you might need um, a focus in content and then the next you might need crisis and the the following month around the holidays you might need traditional PR. Um, And so I think there was an inflexibility of of being able to hire um, and hire an expert but uh, specific to that skill or service needed. With Publicist, Lara is using technology to transform the traditional PR and marketing model to deliver flexibility and efficiency for brands. She's been named to both Forbes and BT's 30 Under 30 lists, and she's just getting started. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by The Outnet, the ultimate fashion destination where you'll find over 350 designer brands at up to 70% off. The Outnet is the place to go when you're looking to build your wardrobe with designer pieces at exceptional prices. So whether you're dreaming of Zimmerman dresses, a Stella McCartney suit, or coveting everything from Valentino, it's all there. And right now, The Outnet are offering our listeners 20% off their next clothing purchase. Just enter the code FUTUREWOMEN20 at the shopping bag. Terms and conditions apply. Visit theoutnet.com forward slash futurewomen for more details. Lara, welcome. Firstly, thank Thank you you. for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. You started your career as a fashion assistant before you moved into PR. What were those first few working years like? Did you enjoy them? Yes. So I, I graduated Uh, high school at 17 um, and at the same time I was doing my combined degree I actually worked full-time the whole time and so I was doing internships through school and ended up working at Women's Day magazine as a fashion assistant there. Um, Always liked fashion you know 
who doesn't? Um, and was lucky enough to, to kind of work at ACP, which is now Bauer. Um, and it was great to be on the other side of the industry because the people that I was talking to day in and day out were the PR agencies. So I think, um, you know, editorial and journalism is a really, really solid foundation for um, anyone in the comms industry. Well, then that means that you know what they're looking for when you do put out a press release or you do have to sort of manage a difficult time or what, you know, you know how the journalist yeah. is going to pull together a story. And you're being on the side um, to see who works well. So you can, you know, you pick up um, the tricks of people that are great publicists and then others that are less Maybe than that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now at 21, you took a leap and you moved to New York and you started working as a consultant for the Westfield World Trade Centre. Why did you want to leave the security of Sydney and, you know, you've got all of the support of your family and friends and a network yep. to, you know, go into the relative unknown? Yeah. Um, I mean, New York is incredible. And I found that every time I was taking annual leave, I was going over to New York um, and setting up meetings and actually using it as a networking opportunity. And and finally, I decided that I was going to move. So it was, you know, 21, I was about to turn 22 um, and made the leap. And I, you know, in my first few days there, I uh, had back-to-back meetings and interviews just kind of saying, this is who I am, I'll take any job, um, and really quickly was was offered a role at Westfield. Um, and so Westfield was opening the, uh, the retail arm of the World Trade Centre, um, phenomenal building called the Oculus that uh, the designer Santiago Calatrava built or designed, um, and it was a, you know, world-class team that they'd brought from all different Westfields onto the project. Um, and the, the role was incredibly junior. It was incredibly basic. I was, you know, getting coffees and, and doing anything and doing anything, but um, they gave me a visa. And so obviously when you move to, to a different country, that's, you know, a really critical thing that you <laughs> yeah, need to, to stay be allowed in the country. <laughs> to, to, to be allowed and stay in the country. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, moved over at 21. That's such um, a huge step. It is, but do you know what? I think it's actually scarier moving later yeah. because you move at 21 and you are so starry eyed. You are just such a yes person. You're incredibly resilient. And so, yeah, in hindsight, 21 was so young, but I think you, um, yeah, you're a lot more resilient and it's almost easier because the thing is, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? You, it doesn't work out. You don't get a visa. You need to move home. It's like, okay, you save up money and you pay for a flight back home and it doesn't work and you've still been able to travel and but it has worked and so I've been there for a a little while. Do you reckon I mean people often talk about how New York City is like you know the biggest and hardest city in the world to break into did you have a moment where you were like oh this is a real struggle I'm not going to make it I've got to go home. Oh I have that still 50 times a day. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what New York is such an extreme city I mean it smells, it's too hot or too cold. Um, you know, people can be really cruel, but it is there's something magical about it. And I do think, um, especially for the industry that I'm in, PR and marketing, it's really the capital of the world. Um, but you are just around some of the, yeah, the biggest thought leaders in, the, in all industries. Um, and so it's a, it is a really hard city. Um, but I think to have a really good relationship with New York and you, you figure out that you actually spend a lot of alone time in New York, you know, whether you're, you walk everywhere and so you're in your head a lot. Um, and to have a really good relationship with New York, you need to be really kind to yourself and also leave the city a lot to, 
for it to still to be, you know, romantic and for mm. you to love it. Absolutely. So well, when you were, um, you were still at, at Westfield at this point mm -hmm. and then you moved on to the digital marketing company Notch and you sort of worked your way up the ranks to Senior Vice President of Communications and Marketing. Tell us a little bit about your time there and what it was like transitioning from, you know, the job that you got when you were still, you know, basically yeah. a kid to, you know, what is essentially like a really adult and big job. Yeah, so so I had one job actually in between Westfield uh, and Notch, mm -hmm. um, but I can get onto Notch. So when I left Westfield, uh, I got a job leading communications and marketing for a beauty company called Archetypes. Um, and the woman that founded that, she was absolutely brilliant. She'd had uh, two startups prior to Archetypes that she'd sold for a combined $2 billion. Wow. Um, or close to that. And so one was called Philosophy that she sold to Coty. Um, and so I joined uh, this woman, Christina, uh, as one of the first employees and we really built the brand, um, the marketing and communications around it. And what I loved was, um, you know, the way that PR and marketing can actually really drive results and, and be tied to revenue. Um, and so when I left Archetypes, I was, um, it's really interesting when, when you join a startup, you're almost interviewing that startup as much as they're in interviewing you. Um, because, you know, you need to be crazy enough that you're joining someone else's, else's mission. And, you know, that's crazy that sometimes there's not a product in market, but somebody believes in something so much that you're willing to join them on that journey. Um, and so I ended up with, uh, you know, data analytics and marketing company called Notch. Um, and I joined them for a few reasons. So it was a similar um, angle that I was, you know, the eighth employee there. Um, they had a good product and a good vision, but they didn't have any marketing or communications. Um, and so started there in early 2016. Um, and we've, we grew the company. So they've since raised a Series A and a Series B, um, but we launched so many different products. Um, they sell into some of the biggest companies in the world, um, so lots of financial services and insurance companies in the Fortune 500 um, and have recently left there um, to go full-time on my own thing. How exciting. And so you've always been in this sort of startup space, you know, since you left Westfield really. Yeah. Been around these like really strong slash crazy people who are willing to sort of really take a lead. And women. And women, strong women. What about those roles attracted you? Yeah, so I think it comes down to, to probably three things. Um, one is absolutely the founder. Um, you need you know, you are, it's almost like a marriage when you join a company that early and you need to, you're signing into a contract. It's, it's, um, it's really intense. And so, you know, you both do a lot of due diligence about each other. So I think one is absolutely the founder. Um, the second is the mission or the vision of a company. Um, and you need to wholeheartedly believe that because if you don't, um, you know, you, you're going to end up leaving and it's, it's not going to be great. Um, and then the third, um, more of a practical thing is um, it needs to be have, either have a financial plan or be financially backed um, because sadly you hear of so many different startups that don't work out because, you know, they couldn't figure out their monetization plan or whatever it is. So I would say that those three things are the formula for, um, for success in, in joining a startup. So... Through this experience of working in PR and you're beginning to look at the marketing and advertising game and how things, you know, could potentially work differently, you decided to launch your own side hustle. I did. Publicist. What about the PR industry inspired you to try to do things differently? Yeah, so 
I mean, as you can tell, I'm incredibly passionate about the industry and, and almost as I, from when I started my career or even before, you know, listening to dad, um, I was A, hearing everything that was, you know, amazing about the industry. And then what I didn't realise was I was picking up all of these insights about what wasn't great. Um, and about PR specifically, I think it's one of the, the last industries to be truly disrupted um, by technology. Um, it's, you know, to some extent it's inefficient, um, the way retainers work. Um, it's, yeah, it's infle- inflexible. It, it costs a lot of money. Um, it's just, it's tough. And, and also with marketing, you know, brands have these really serious marketing budgets. Um, and 15 years ago, the way that they would work is they would hire a digital marketing retainer. But now you have hundreds and hundreds of services um, from, you know, Amazon marketing to the rising content creation. Um, but you can't still expect that a digital marketing agency and a PR agency is going to do everything for you. Um, and the way that, you know, the industry is 35% actually freelance. And so it's, you know, it's slow and it, and it lags. Um, and so I decided to launch a product um, and kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was about two years ago, I actually realized I was doing a lot of free work for a lot of my friends and, and, you know, people in the industry. And what I mean by that was people were coming to me saying, can you review this or can you mm-hmm. introduce me to this person? Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to London. Can you please connect me with an agency? And I was so happy to do it because they were the relationships that I had. Um, it's what I knew, but I was getting exhausted from doing free working and networking for people. Um, so I decided to build a product to, to help that. So tell me about how publicist works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So publicist is, it's essentially an online marketplace that connects PR and marketing talent uh, with brands. So um, Airbnb is a marketplace, Uber is a marketplace, and essentially um, there are two sides, supply and demand, um, and we connect them through technology to be connected. Um, Yeah. Why do you think it's so important that the PR industry you know, needs a shake-up like this or has had to have a shake-up like this. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, while budgets are increasing, the amount of services um, offered to a brand um, is completely outpacing that. So unless you are, I think, one of the big four tech companies, you know, an Amazon or a Facebook, you actually don't need traditional PR 365 days of the year. Um, It's really cyclical. So one month you might need um, a focus in content and then the next you might need crisis and the the following month around the holidays you might need traditional PR. Um, And so I think there was an inflexibility of, of being able to hire Hire, um, and hire an expert uh, specific to that skill or service needed. So when you had the idea for publicist, how did you know that it was something worth pursuing? I mean, how did you know to sort of back yourself? Did you have conversations with your friends and family or contacts within the industry? Yes. Yeah, so the way I started was um, at first, actually, I decided that I was going to build a marketplace, hire a really big team, raise a lot of money um, and, you know, take it on. Um, And it was actually the advice of my former boss at Notch, the CEO, uh, incredible woman called Anda. And she said, absolutely do not do that. Um, Build a thing called an MVP, which is a minimal viable product. Spend a little bit of your own money. Um, Have it in a controlled testing area with your network and people in the industry that you know. If it works, great. 
you rebuild, then you go back to the plan that you had, um, rebuild the technology, raise the money, go full steam ahead. Um, and if it doesn't work, then hopefully you've just lost a little bit of money and in the long run, hopefully, you know, that's okay. So you're at this MVP stage and you start sort of testing it out by, you know, instead of saying to your friends, okay, I'll do you the favour, you just like, kindly please go have a look at this website that I've created. Seriously. Well, backing up a little, I had a team that spent five months building this MVP. Um, So once that was launched and live and I project managed all of that, some crazy hours dealing with um, Eastern Europe, um, (laughs) phenomenal, phenomenal engineers. Um, and then what I then did was uh, send it out to every everyone I knew, you know, about a thousand of my closest friends, um, for them to pass it on and test it out. And um, most people either were on supply or demand, so they either needed somebody um, to hire or they were someone in the industry that was happy to work. Um, so that was in May of 2018. We put the product to market, um, and by December of 2018, last year, we had some really um, exciting and meaningful results. Amazing. Yeah. And so tell me about the process of engaging someone who can build a website like that or a product like that because, you know, I wouldn't know where to even begin looking and, you know, what a reasonable amount to spend on that sort of thing mm-hmm. was. I mean, how much you, How much do you do you feel comfortable saying how much you yeah, spent on so it? Yeah, so I spent about $30,000. That's wow. US. So what's that, about 45000 Australian at the moment on on the MVP. So it's not an insignificant amount. Like no, at that stage, it's you're a, still like, I bloody hope this works. Yeah, you know, it's a really great car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think like most of the things um, that I'm not good at, because everyone knows what they're good at, but, you know, we're not good at so much. So it's it's not dissimilar from how I found my lawyer or it's you ask, you know, 20 people um, and hopefully there are results that are similar or corroborate um, and you test the waters and it's a lot of failing and iterating. Um, I actually tried to have my platform built before this um, through actually another marketplace and it did not work out at all. Um, they weren't as qualified as they said. So, you know, you seriously failing daily is is real so I was referred these um, developers they're actually in Romania um, and they were brilliant they're exactly what I needed the site was incredibly robust it did everything from you know you could you could pitch on the on the platform you could we had a payment integration um, you could speak to people and so it was it was it was awesome were you scared handing over credit card details to a bunch of people in Romania that you know, you've never sort of met face to face. (laughs) Yeah. And still haven't. Um, yes and no. I think the excitement and desperation to get it done and done it and get it done quick, um, kind of, yeah, surpasses and outweighs the, the nervousness, but it's, uh, I'm excited (laughs) just sort of hearing it. (laughs) Once you knew that you were going to give it a, a decent nudge, Talk us through what went into preparing to, to launch the company. So you stayed at Notch yes. while you were building it up. Yes. So I think the thing with um, tech companies specifically in the US, you need to be incredibly honest with any work that you're doing um, because down the down the line it can really hurt you if, you know, from IP or if um, 
you ever worked on their time. So the whole time I've been incredibly um, upfront and transparent in saying, this is what I'm doing. It's a you know non-competitive product. Um, and they've actually been incredible. So I let them know uh, in December of last year when we had you know, great results, um, you know, had a couple of thousand freelancers on the platform by then. And I said, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm going all in. So that was in December of last year. And then that has taken us to October of 2019, in which I I stayed there um, once the new rebuild uh, has happened. um, And so left Notch in October. Were you nervous to have those conversations with your boss? Yes and no. Um, they get it. And so there were two co-founders, Anda and Aaron. Um, Aaron's actually Australian from Melbourne. And he not only was, you know, a boss, but an incredible friend. And before I built the MVP, he knew I had this idea. And he said to me, he goes, would you be annoyed? Like, would you be pissed off if someone else beat you to market? And I was like, absolutely. Yes, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, as a competitive person, that puts a bit of a fire in your belly. So, um they have been, you know, I helped them build their company and now the advice that they're giving to me from fundraising to um, design and and everything has been, it's been a great partnership. And so, you know, you're saying now that um, you had to do a rebuild and you've already signed up like thousands of people as suppliers and um, how did you go from the, the smaller MVP to building the bigger site that could handle, um, you know, all of the things you needed it to handle? Did you have to raise more money? Um, so I raised money at the end of it. Okay. Um, but yes, so... What was the process that you went through for that? Oh, the, it is a process. <laughs> is so in raising money, you need to identify uh, how much you're going to raise, Um what you are going to do with the money and similar to, you know, when I mentioned about um, me taking a risk on founders in joining their early startups, why are people going to to do the same for you in in parting with their cash? Um, So I decided to raise a, what's called a pre-seed, which is, I guess, the same as almost a friends and family, but we're calling it a pre-seed. And that was about 750,000 US dollars. And so it is really exhausting and um, at times it's a little soul destroying because Mm. you're going out there and not only selling yourself um, but you're selling something that you're so incredibly passionate about Mm. and people either get it or they don't or um, you know the process as well like the statistics are true there are not very many women in VC. Um, Something that's actually awesome, I've spoken to a lot of women in Australia in VC and there are a lot more women that I've spoken to in Australia in VC than than in America. Um, But some really great people along the way but it's it's tough. It's it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what does it feel like when you are going out there day after day, sort of, you know, putting the hard sell on people that you may know, yeah. you know, who are part of your own community, yeah, and wanting them to sort of back you and believe in the thing that you believe in? Is that hard to get knocked back in that situation? It is. It is hard to get knocked back. I think that uh, the people that have been fantastic, um, that are some of my investors are people that are, that are in the industry and really understand um, that it's a pain point. And although this uh, this marketplace is um, a vertical marketplace and it's a niche marketplace, it's still a $200 billion industry. And so it's not that small. And so the people that really understand it um, and need this are 
yeah, have come on board. Um, it's often at times people that, that don't understand, um, you know, the industry or, or, or the, you know, intricacies of how it works. They're the ones that I get a little more pushback from. Mm. And so if someone's listening right now and they're sort of going through that, um, that process of trying to raise that first bit of money, what advice would you have for them when you sort of get, um, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, sort of just like put out on your ass yeah. a lot. So something that I would pass on that nobody told me, say that you need to have a hundred conversations to get to a million dollars. Prioritize those people and start from the bottom. So have the conversations with people that you actually don't think you're, that are going to invest or aren't going to be, be the best strategic partners um, because the way that your pitch changes and then the questions that people ask you so you can actually formulate your pitch better um, is so crucial. Um, so I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have had 50 average conversations at the beginning or before I opened the round. Um, so by the time I was talking to the money I really wanted, um, I was incredibly prepared. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I feel the same about when I have to formulate an argument about something that I believe in and the more conversations that I have about it and the more people sort of push back yeah. and say, well, what about this? Or what about this aspect? You're like, okay, hang on a second. I need to think of a response. And then the next time someone says it, you're like, actually, I've got this. guess what? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you've got all of the money um, from that pre-seed round and then you uh, put it into building up the product so that it's better. Yep. And um, it, presumably then you start, sort of start transitioning out of notch. Yep. And, you know, how, how do you know when it's time to sort of pull the plug on your um, your main job yeah. and let go? Because that must be a daunting thing to have a wage, revenue. Oh, a nice <laughs> cushy salary, <laughs> yeah. you know. And not only that, but I'm tied to a visa. So it's even safer. Um, there is no rhyme or reason or right way to, to make that leap. Um, I was really happy with, you know, the way that I did it, which was probably much longer, you know, I've, I trademarked this business name four years ago. So it's been, you know, incredibly, I've been cautious and, and definitely safe. Um, but from when in December, I let them know that I'd be leaving in October, um, those first nine or 10 months completely coincided with, the rebuild of the technology um, mm-hmm. and the raise. And so didn't get much sleep earlier in 2019, <laughs> um, but I probably played it a little bit safe. I would say that's the other thing with raising money. Often people don't want to give you money if you still have a job mm. because it, I guess it can um, – people can think that you're not fully committed um, or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, there's, yeah, there's no right absolutely. way to do it. But in hindsight – I'm, I'm happy that I did it this way. Yeah, absolutely. So being in PR, never having run a company before, how have you built out your business model and financial model? Like, did you call on support? And I'm asking this because I think many of our listeners have big ideas that they want to get off the ground, but they just might not know exactly where to start mm-hmm. when it comes to um, planning all of that. Yep. So I think you need to understand what your strengths are and then what you're not good at all. Um, And it's really important to kind of have that conversation with yourself and say, I'm a great operator, but I can't write code. Or I tried, didn't work. need to leave that to the engineers. Um, Leave that to the Romanians. Two two hours um, later and I was just like, this is is not not a skill set of mine. Um, So 
I figured out that uh, marketing, um, you know, customer acquisition, business development, sales, that they were all really strong suits of mine. Um, and I've always also been measured by those metrics. I've always been tied to revenue. So that part I was fine in terms of building out um, an economic model like that. Um, financial model, no way. That is not my, you know, mm-hmm. my best friend is an accountant. Um, you know, lots of my great friends are in finance. And you lean on those people to say, I've taken a first draft at this would you look over it? So I feel like never in my life have I needed to ask for so many favours. In fact, I think being in PR and marketing, you're the person that people always ask for favours. And so I think, and it's also really hard to ask for help. Um, And so you need to get comfortable with asking for help um, and telling people that you don't know something and you have no idea how willing they are to, to contribute. Yeah. And I guess it's a thing like where you could do sort of contra deals as well. Like if you're, say, if you're listening and you're a lawyer and you have a friend who works in finance, like there are definitely, you know, you can just sort of swap. Definitely. I think that's how the world works, right? Absolutely. It does. Now, I'm sure that it was um, definitely helped along because in 2019, you were nominated in Forbes 30 Under 30 in the marketing and advertising category. How did that come about and what was that experience like, you know, while you've got all of this other stuff going on in the background? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, it was really exciting. Um, Forbes is just incredible. But so how it works is somebody needs to nominate you for a particular list. And in my case, um, it was uh, marketing and advertising. And someone told me that they were nominating me. It was actually uh, my former boss um, and they write a little bit about you. And then from there you get shortlisted, Forbes reaches out and they ask you to do a really um, intense kind of application. Um, And what's really interesting is I thought that they would email me and say, congratulations, the list is coming out tomorrow. Um, But they don't and they publish the list to everyone at the same time. So you don't know so if you're on I it don't know until if you're on it and you don't it. know when they're releasing it. Um, and somebody messaged me and they said, congratulations. And I had no idea what they were talking about. So it was I was on my way to work and I get to my computer and I see that the email saying, congratulations, here's the link to the list. And my first thought was, I've told so many people in New York that I'm older than I am. Now people know my real <laughs> age. I think that in <laughs> I think that in business, or maybe I wasn't even lying, but I was just alluding. Yeah. Um, because I don't know why. Maybe I thought that I could get further ahead if they thought that I was older, even though I look very young. Um, and so when it came out and it said I was 26, I also had about 10 people message me saying, "You're 26." Are you 26? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. But after that subsided. Um, yeah, it's, it's really humbling and, and the people that are on the list as well are the most brilliant humans in the world. I mean, I have peers seriously trying to combat climate change and they're just unbelievable thought leaders. Um, and the community of Forbes, it's kind of, it's not really a, a one and done. It's not like, oh, you've been on the list, congrats, see you later. Um, they foster these communities of entrepreneurship Um you know, I was lucky enough to go with Forbes to Israel this year on a on a trip. They drove us from top to bottom, um, meeting local entrepreneurs in Israel. Um, it's been fantastic. I've spoken at global summits in in the UK with Forbes and you know a few other places. So it's it's been really really great. And the people both from Forbes and people on the list that I've met along the way are you know some of the best humans. Well, then you'd be meeting people who were, you know, pushing themselves and doing all sorts of interesting things. And there would be crossover, of course, in the work that you're doing. So you yeah. could sort of help each other as yeah. well. Yeah, right? and, you know, to that point, 
they have been a lot of the the people that I've had to lean on in saying, you know, how do I start fundraising? Do I start fundraising? Is, you know, is the document a safe or a convertible note? Things that you don't learn at any other time that you have to learn on the go or lawyers or so it's yeah it is it's fantastic like that absolutely what was the reaction like from your parents when they found out so because of the time difference I was just calling them you know dozens of times and I don't know if anyone has a home phone anymore but we don't so I was you know both of their phones were on silent Um, and then by the time I told them I was going to bed Um, and they were so excited. My dad, I think he'd probably gone through, you know, the list of everyone in his phone book to call. (laughs) He just didn't know what to do. So he actually, he called up my high school and he told them, he just called the receptionist and he was like, I just want to let you know. And they were like, cool. So they're so sweet. Yeah. They were very, very excited and and proud. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The parents are the best supporters. They're just so gorgeous. Yeah. Parents are the best. Now, speaking of networks, there's a really strong group of Australian entrepreneurs in New York. How did you tap into that network? And for anyone moving to New York, how can they find this Aussie cohort? Yeah. um, I think when I initially moved over, joining an Australian company really helped. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but the current Consul General um, is a wonderful man. His name is Alistair Walton and he has created some fantastic programming for entrepreneurs. So he'll, you know, bring in um, thought leaders and business executives and politicians or whoever it may be. Um, and the programming that they've done, um, the Australian government has been amazing. On a, on a smaller scale, um, there's a, you know, there are Facebook groups, Australian in New York, that I've had to mute the notifications because it's so amazing and so big now. Um, but the Aust- Australians are really lucky. We have a visa called the E3 um, that we've had, I think, for about 15 years. Um, and the premise of that was under the Bush government, they traded troops for visas. Wow. Yeah. And so we're the only country that has it. It's called um, the E3. And essentially what needs to happen is your degree needs to correlate exactly with the title of your profession in the US. And so I think we get 15,000 of them a year and I think we only use a third of them. Um, so, you know, there are lots of gateways to go over and, and get a job, but there are, yes, it's such an incredible community. Um, there are organisations like the American Australian Network in New York, um, but people just, you know, Aussies are, Aussies are awesome. Yeah, we really are. Yeah. I love how that when people go overseas, I know that it's a cliche like, oh, all the Aussies hang out in Shepherd's Bush or yeah. you know, all the Aussies in, um, in New York or in Brooklyn or yeah. whatever. But, uh, you know, they sort of hang out together because it's like being home. You know, it's sort yeah. of like the comfort of being at home but, you know, pushing yourself a bit harder no, because absolutely. you've taken the leap to go overseas. And we don't take ourselves too seriously but I think, yeah, I think that when I'm with Aussies I never laugh as hard as I do, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Oh, that's gorgeous. And so how did you know, let's get back onto publicist for a second. Um, How did you know what kind of funding you needed and, and how have you continued to like keep up to date with what you know you need? Like, did you set Mm -hmm. milestones early on Mm -hmm. or like targets that you needed to hit for certain parts of the year? Yeah. So I was really lucky at Notch to have a seat at the table to understand, um, you know, I was with them before they raised their Series A and then their Series B. Um, and, you know, the company was really great at setting KPIs and milestones. Um, and so in terms of deciding that I needed, you know, X amount to, 
to ra- to raise um, for the company, you often the first amount of funding that you have, you want that to last you at least a year and a half. Um, so obviously, you know, hopefully you've got money coming in, um, but you need to figure out how many employees you need, um, how much money uh, usually goes toward marketing acquisition is one of, will be one of my bigger costs, um, and then headcount. So how many people you know do you need on full time? Uh, staff and then how many consultants and so that's kind of the the maths behind it Um, in terms of milestones I actually don't really believe in setting goals because I think you change as a business and as a person so quickly that you know if you have a goal in a month's time and you you know miss that goal if the goal is to increase something by 20 percent and you actually only increase to 19 percent that technically means you failed but 19% 19% growth is is actually huge. It's pretty close, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. So I think instead I probably had a list of everything that I – there was so much to do and I've been doing it by myself. And so it's kind of just, you know, getting through this list and then the list grows. So I actually didn't have milestones, mm-hmm. um, but there was such early traction that, you know, I knew that – I knew that this is what I had to do. And so do you have staff working for you at the moment or it's just you doing it? Um, so I've got a little team starting in a couple of months, oh, which is very exciting. exciting. I've had lots of consultants um, yeah. and then you realise what you what you need. Um, and for me, I need a tech lead and I need um, a business development customer acquisition person. And so you've chosen the people who are going to join your team? I have, yes. How did you go about finding them? Um, my, they were both actually in my existing network. Wow. Um, and they're brilliant and, you know, they are crazy enough to join me on this crazy, um, crazy journey. Um, but, yeah, so it was it was fantastic. Do you feel an extra bit of pressure there because you're not just doing something because you believe in it, but now you're sort of providing for someone? It's almost providing like health insurance. For, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it makes it so much more serious. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if if you fail, it's it's just you. And so you're right, you know, people have families to feed. Um but you just take it that much more seriously um, and they do too. Absolutely. And of course they wouldn't join if they didn't know, you know, they know what the risks are but they also know what the rewards are and they obviously back you. Yeah. And they back themselves so, you know, they're absolute partners to be in this. Tommy, do you ever have moments where you sort of like wake up and you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Do I know what I'm doing? Like who am I? (laughs) Why have I chosen to do this? Um, People always talk about imposter syndrome which – I think I had early on in New York, at the beginning of each job, I've had imposter syndrome where you're like, what am I doing? Why should I be here? Why someone, you know, why someone not with 10 more years experience sitting at the table? With publicist, I haven't had it yet. Mm. I'm kind of, I'm feeling good at the, at the moment. You know Ask me in a week's what, time. Maybe that's what being on Forbes does to you. <laughs> you know, you're like, actually, I've made it now. I'm fine. I think I've got this. Uh, hard no. Absolutely yeah. <laughs> um, But yeah, I haven't had that yet. I think, do you know what? I think I've had so much to do that I haven't had a moment of self-reflection. Um, and I'm kind of happy about that because maybe when I do sit back, I'll be like, oh, yeah. oh dear. Idle hands. No, I, you absolutely deserve to be exactly where you are. Oh, thank you. So, Publicist will launch in Australia this year. Why have you decided to launch in the Aussie market? Yeah, so the Australian market is actually a great testing market for um, the rest of the world. Um, But that's not necessarily 
why I've chosen, like, you know, when Instagram took likes away, um, I can actually still see likes on my American phone, you know, there and products, there are healthcare products that are often tested in Australia because we're so close to Asia Pacific um, that if something works, then, you know, chances are it'll work in Asia. And if it doesn't, then, you know, it's only 20 million people that you've really affected. You know, I think New York is bigger than Australia. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the reasons, but the main reason is there's actually great supply and demand here and the talent uh, in PR and marketing in Australia is some of the best talent in the world. So um, America was, you know, a very natural um, launch for me. Uh, my network's over there when we did the MVP, most of the freelancers were there. Um, but with Australia, I'm really excited to launch and I think Australia um, really understands the skill sets needed um, in the diversity of services. So, um, you know, they're a brilliant former journalists that are now content creators. Um, there are so many, you know, small boutique PR agencies opening that you know, offer search. And so I think there's this, you know, multitude of, of really good services here. Um, and, and what sort of brands do you hope to work with? So that's a great question. Um, the, the users of the, of the platform in the US right now, um, they have somewhere between a two and $20 million marketing budget. So that's someone, that's a startup that's raised about a series C. Um, we are toward the end of this year launching a um, starter kit for startups, which is really exciting. It kind of gets you your first piece of piece of press and an opinion piece and a media list and content. Um, so that kind of appeases the, the small market. Um, and then we've got an enterprise solution launching for, for some of the the really big fish, um, the Fortune 500. So what is your hope for publicist in the next 12 months? I know you don't set goals, but, you know, if you had to close your eyes and imagine where you, you know, where you hope you are. Yeah, so, and that's a great question. I hope that we are, you know, North America, Australia and the UK, um, that we would have launched about three or four products um, and probably in a year's time I'll be gearing up for another round of fundraising so probably in a year's time I would have recovered um, <laughs> and, and we'll be ready to do it again um, but yeah I hope to have a great little team and then yeah open in three continents. And what about five years? World five years right wouldn't that be great? Um, I hope in five years that the PR and marketing industry is, you know, just absolutely thriving. Um, and I hope the publicist, publicist has had a lot to do with that. Um, five years, I think that I'll still be in New York. Um, hopefully, though, with a great team running it so I can come back to Australia often. See mum and dad a bit more. Yeah, they'd like that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura Vandenberg. I'm so excited to see where this takes you and I'm super excited to sort of speak to you at what, at what feels like the very beginning of something that's going to be Thank just you. huge. Thanks Brooke and maybe I come back in a couple of years and we can we can give an update. Exactly when you're like yeah. a billionaire you know and it's not just 30 we'll do under it in 30. New York. Exactly exactly. Yeah, 40 under 40. Exactly <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. Thank lovely. you. Thanks for joining me this week with Lara Vandenberg the CEO and founder of Publicist We'll be watching Publicis closely when it launches in Australia later this year. Please tap those stars and leave us a review. And if you're in the mood, why don't you go on and tell some of your friends about us as well? Thanks and see you next week. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by The Outnet. 
The Outnet is where you'll find designer pieces for up to 70% off. Build your wardrobe with staples from Gunny and Sandro, as well as statement pieces from Diane von Furstenberg and Valentino. Right now, The Outnet are offering our listeners 20% off their next clothing purchase. Just enter the code FUTUREWOMEN20 at the shopping bag. Terms and conditions apply. Visit theoutnet.com forward slash futurewomen for more details. This podcast is brought to you by Future Women. Become a member to gain full access to our exclusive content and packed calendar of online events. Every week we bring you amazing guests, expert advice, and you get to ask the questions. You can also upskill with our online learning program to build resilience and better define your personal brand. It's never been more important to connect, learn, and lead. Join the movement today by going to futurewomen.com. There's an option to suit every budget.